Voyage. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Don Bowles was a reporter in Arizona for the Arizona Republic and the Phoenix Gazette. He had been working on a series of newspaper reports about swindles in the sale of land and other rackets. Two weeks ago, he got into his car, started it, and a bomb planted in it blew up. He was severely wounded. Yesterday, he died. Voyage Media presents The Patsy. The investigation into the murder of Don Bowles began, like all homicide investigations, as a puzzle. But soon it would become clear that that puzzle was wrapped in a mystery, which the police seemed to have little interest in solving. When Don Bowles was killed in 1976, he was more than just a victim of, of, of a homicide. He was a double victim in that we never really solved it officially. Uh, the, the ultimate insult to the First Amendment is to kill a reporter in the line of duty, and that's what happened to him. Uh, but he was victimized further by having been uh, a further victim of a miscarriage of justice as to what happened to him. You don't honor a, a slain colleague as a reporter by, by celebrating a miscarriage of justice. We never, in effect, got the right guys for it. It was a complete catastrophe from start to finish. The brutal car bombing assassination of Don Bowles not only sent shockwaves throughout the community of Phoenix, Arizona, but the fallout would be felt most by Rosalie Bowles and her four children, and Don Bowles' three children from a previous marriage, and eventually by the family of the accused mastermind of the plot, Max Dunlap, who was married to his high school sweetheart, Barbara. My mom and my dad were inseparable. They actually got set up on a blind date with, um, with two couples. My dad's best friend set him up, but they were with the different partners. Each of them had a different partner, and at the end of the date, they, they decided that they really liked each other, and they asked their um, friends if they could, you know, go on a date, if, it, if they wouldn't be upset. And it was kind of a cute story because they went on a date, and I don't know how long after that they were married, but they've been inseparable. They were inseparable their whole lives. Max Dunlap spent his entire adult life creating a picture-perfect life in Phoenix, in spite of his humble and difficult upbringing. In his diary, Max recalled the telling moment from his childhood that set him on his path to the American dream. One childhood memory that will stay with me forever is when my father brought my mother a Frigidaire refrigerator. It was a big deal to us. 
but we only had the Frigidaire a few months when two men came early in the morning to the back door and wanted to speak to my father. I did not know what repossessed meant, but I was about to find it out, and it would be embedded in my brain for the rest of my life. My dad's father had left him his gold watch and vest chain, which my dad wore very proudly every day. My dad pleaded with the men to give him a few more days and offered to let them hold the gold watch till he raised the six dollars it took to bring the payment, bring it current. They said no, as they were taking the Frigidaire down the driveway on a dolly. My dad followed them on his knees, begging them to take his gold watch and chain. That was the day the fire was lit inside my belly. I vowed to God that night I would make enough money to buy my father a thousand Frigidaires if he wanted them. In the days after the bombing, Phoenix homicide detective John Sellers visited the mortally wounded Don Bowles in the intensive care unit. He came with a mugshot of John Adamson, the man Bowles fingered as he lay bleeding out on the asphalt of the parking lot at the Clarendon Hotel. The following interview is decades old and illustrates how the investigation unfolded. We went out and got a driver's license photograph and went to see Bolt in the hospital, who at this point had both legs cut off and one of his arms was cut off and his other arm was probably going to be cut off and he had some tubes in his throat so he couldn't speak. And we showed him a series of photographs and he identified Adamson as being the Adamson that he was going to meet. We took, as best we could, a statement which was a one-sided inner statement. You know, I just asked him questions and he nodded his head or moved his one finger that he had on his left hand, as I recall. When we was trying to pinpoint where he had met him and if he'd been followed and if he suspected, you know, other things. It wasn't a very productive interview except that he did identify Adamson as being the one he was going to meet, which then gave us our first positive lead on, on a suspect, other than just a name. At that point, we put out a pickup for Adamson and because Neil, well, you have to go back in history because Adamson was a friend of Neil Roberts, first yeah. of all. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons that Neil Roberts did that. And that's why Neil, that's why Neil Roberts ultimately came to us and gave us the sworn statements, you know, that he gave us. So, in a sense, the sworn statement that we took from Neil in the presence of John Flynn and the Deputy County Attorney Gene Neal was a good investigative tool because based on that is why we pulled Max Dunlap down to talk to him. And you'll have to read the statement if you to understand what I'm saying. Neil circumstantially implicated Max Dunlap with Kemper Marley and the Rangeland justice type theory and so forth. So at that point in time, myself and Dan Dryden didn't know Kemper Marley from that poinsettia plant over there. And we didn't know Max Dunlap either. But based on that information, and then based on Neil Roberts' sworn statement, and based on our, our research that who Max Dunlap was now and his relationship to Kemper Marley, we pulled Max down. Pulitzer Prize-nominated investigative reporter Don Devereaux had a wildly different perspective on the John Sellers investigation. The notion, as expressed by some cops in this investigation back at the time, that maybe Max Dunlap uh, was you know, doing this because of what happened to Kemper. The, the article about Kemper by Bowles that was published in February of that year, that Kemper then resigned from the Racing Commission not to embarrass Ralph Castro, supposedly, and that Max somehow, uh, as a 
protege of Kemper's was angry enough about this whole episode that he took upon himself four months later uh, to arrange to have Bowles killed with a with a car bomb. So, who is this mysterious Kemper Marley? Well, he was not just one of the wealthiest businessmen, landowners, and politically influential men in Phoenix, but he had also been the mentor to Max Dunlap when he was a teen. In fact, Kemper Marley lent Max $5,000 to start his contracting business right out of high school. Max made good on that loan, and his friendship and loyalty to Kemper would last for decades. But does that mean Max would have killed a man on his behalf? Uh, that is the sketchiest motive I think I've ever run across for a high-profile homicide. But Kemper was not that perturbed about getting off the Racing Commission. He had reasons of his own at that time to leave the Racing Commission. So the whole notion that because Kemper got off the Racing Commission, which he was going to do anyway, uh, somehow angered Max Dunlap enough that a guy with absolutely no, nothing in his background that ever suggested that he even had that kind of capacity would take it upon himself to get involved in a, a high-profile homicide of a reporter with a car bomb. The whole thing just did not work uh, as, as a, a motive that explained anything to anybody. And one of the things that bothered me even at that level when I began to work for the Scottsdale Progress was trying to wrap my head around why Max ever would have consented to do something like that. It just didn't make any sense. Uh, it made no sense at all. Max Dunlap's supposed co-conspirator, John Adamson, told the police that he had personally planted six sticks of dynamite under Bull's car. But after the police tested that theory, they became convinced that only three sticks of dynamite were used. Why did John Adamson claim responsibility for more than he actually did? Why would he play up his role, knowing the circumstances? When Adamson was identified and ultimately arrested in the Bowles case and uh, obviously facing murder charges because John identified him and a few of John's friends had also come forward and pointed out things that they knew that indicated he was involved as well. John knew he was toast. He knew he was going down on a capital murder charge. Uh, he knew from the outset that there was no way he was going to avoid that. And in conversations with Neil, they kind of figured out what they were going to do with that. The only question was how much time would John actually have to serve? And the only question was who they could blame other than the people that were really responsible. They were both smart enough to know that they could not have named the Funks and the mob and hoped to survive very long if they had done so. Uh, that was not something you could do in Arizona at that time with the hope, hope of living a long life. So they had to come up with an alternative plan at the, at the get-go, and they knew that. And John even told a friend of his, my people don't give immunity. And Neil knew the same thing. Neil knew that he could be toast. Neil even had a little book written quickly after the, uh, the bombing, uh, which he gave to an attorney friend. One of those, if anything ever happened to me other than a heart attack, you know, released just the public. It was his insurance policy. They knew they, they could not identify the Funks or the mob as having been involved. So the only question was, you know, who could they get away with naming and make it work? And Neil very quickly came up with the, with the Max Dunlap uh, solution. And that's what they went with, and uh, they made it. They made it work. Uh, they had some help, obviously, along the way from the attorney general, but they they got it sold, and uh, and uh, they didn't get prosecuted for all practical purposes. Uh, they, it worked. The guys that kill bulls got away with it. John Adamson was arrested, followed by James Robison, and the man who hired him, Max Dunlap. 
Adamson talked, saying the liquor wholesaler and wealthy rancher Kemper Marley ordered the hit. Angry that Bull's stories cost him a political appointment, Marley was never charged, and few are satisfied that the real reason for Bull's murder is known. There's a persistent belief that Bull's killer is still out there. But there was another strange coincidental death that followed on the heels of Max Dunlap's arrest in January of 1977. Don Bull's editor at the Arizona Republic, Tom Sanford. Though Bull's bosses had put him out to pasture in 1973, three years before the bombing, by taking him off the investigative desk and assigning him to cover the legislative beat, Bowles secretly continued his investigations into the mob ties to dog track racing in Arizona through the Emprise Corporation run by the Funk family. And Bowles was continuing his back-channel relationship with Betty Funk during her child custody fight with her ex, Brad Funk. Bowles secretly shared his findings with his friend and editor Tom Sanford, whom Bowles saw as his only ally at the Arizona Republic. Tom Sanford... Uh, was killed in January of 77 while the Arizona Project was still in town. 36 of us up on the upper floor of the, at the Adams Hotel, and we hadn't even noticed it. Uh, his death was recorded in the, one of the back pages of the Arizona Republic as a suicide, and, and we had not paid any attention to it. Nobody, even though we had four guys from the Arizona Project working, uh, from, from the Republic, working with the Arizona Project, uh, nobody mentioned that there was a relationship between Sanford and, and Don Bowles. So here we have a, a guy who was his editor who kills himself with a shotgun while we are in town, dies violently, kind of mysteriously, and we don't even notice. Later on, I went through the archives of the Arizona Project, and there's not even an index card with Tom Sanford's name on it. We paid no attention to his death whatsoever at the time. Went right by us. It turned out that Tom had been suspicious himself of the official direction that the Bulls case had gone. Uh, he had tried when the Arizona Project came to town to get permission to be one of the Re Republic reporters that worked on the Arizona Project. He was denied that opportunity, even told by the brass that the Republic did not have any contact with us. And so he had quietly launched his own investigation of the Bulls murder himself uh, while he was still working at the Arizona Republic. Uh, Shortly before he, is, he was killed, he went out and had an interview with Neil Roberts, apparently in the evening. And Neil was the kind of alcoholic that the later in the day you talked to him, the more you were likely to learn. And Neil began drinking by midday, and by night he was pretty well toasted and probably careless more than he would have been earlier in the day. Uh, Tom came home and told the daughter that he had just learned something that could get them all killed. I just met with Neil Roberts. He told me things that could put me and our entire family at risk. Tom Sanford had uncovered something he wanted to share with Rosalie Bowles, Don's widow, that he believed would blow the case wide open. I've got the story now. I'm ready to write. A lot of heads are going to roll. The next day, he called Rosalie Bowles, uh, told her he had uh, learned something about her husband's death, you know, who did it, and wanted to meet with her. And they agreed to meet the following morning at a park in Phoenix where nobody would recognize them in a neighborhood that neither one of them lived. I mean, it was that kind of sensitive information. They were both nervous about transacting. And then hours after he made arrangements to talk to her, he had lunch with a friend uh, named Bill Meek. Um, no indication anything was wrong. 
Tom was in the process of leaving the Republic at that time for a lot of reasons, uh, mostly uh, good ones, and um, was lining up through Bill Meek some alternative employment options for some appointments later that week. Uh, and then after having made arrangements to having to meet Rosalie the following morning, he went home and then went out in the desert and blew his head off with a shotgun, as the story officially went. Uh, as I looked at that episode in more detail, the stranger it got. Uh, it, it was inconceivable that Tom would have made arrangements to meet with Rosalie the following morning to tell her what happened to her husband, and then without any further ado, simply go out and kill himself and not let that happen. She learned about it, you know, by radio the next morning, radio news. Today, Arizona Republic editor Tom Sanford was found dead off Highway 210 in a remote portion of the desert outside Phoenix. Sanford was found lying next to his vehicle, cradling a shotgun. The death is being investigated as an apparent suicide. It was horrifying. Um, it, it made no sense. And then I examined the police reports on the, on the Sanford death. He died outside the jurisdiction of the city of Phoenix. He was out on a country road in Maricopa County where he was killed, or killed himself, supposedly. Get him out! Pull him out! Lay them on the ground over there! Good! And put the bottle in the car. Make sure you spill some on the floor. You want me to waste good whiskey? Just do it! The shotgun was laid very neatly with the stock between his legs and the barrel up along his chest with the, the nozzle pointing toward his chin and no fingerprints. And uh, there's no way Tom wiped that gun clean after he killed himself. And the gun was pristine, not even smudges. I talked to a number of law enforcement people and they say you always find something, maybe not complete prints, but at least smudged fingerprints of some sort on the stock and barrel of the gun. Tom would have had to handle both the barrel and the stock to position it in such a way under the, the right cheek on his face. Uh, there is some question as to whether Tom could have placed the, 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 the barrel against his right cheek and even reached the trigger. I'm not sure he could have. But it was never investigated other than as a suicide. When the, when the crime tech guy was called to come to the crime scene to check for fingerprints and everything else to help the deputy that was already there, uh, he was contacted on a 666 code, which is the suicide code for the Maricopa Sheriff's Office. So the department was already calling it a suicide before the, the crime tech even got to the scene of the crime. And even though the crime scene tech raised questions at the, at the time about the lack of fingerprints, uh, it went nowhere, and within a very short time, without any check at home to see what Tom was doing, what was his state of mind, did he leave a suicide note, is anything else missing, is there anything else wrong with this picture? None of that was done. There was no investigation whatsoever. The ME's office the following day labeled it a suicide, end of story. And uh, it never should have been. At the very least, it should have been an undetermined death. Uh, it should have been left open. Uh, because there's no way in the world that I can understand that as a, as a suicide under those circumstances. Tom Sanford left something very important behind when he was killed. His files from the Don Bowles investigation. As Bowles had continued his investigations into the Emprise Corporation and its ties to the Mafia, even after he'd been ordered by his bosses at the Arizona Republic to abandon his investigation, according to Don Devereaux, 
Bowles had run every piece of paper, every detail, secretly to his only confidant and ally on the case, Tom Sanford. So what happened to all that material after Bowles and Sanford were killed? When, when Tom was still alive uh, and frustrated because he couldn't work with the Arizona Project, and he had, as I indicated, conducted his own investigation of the, of the Bowles case, uh, his widow never could find that file. Uh, whatever Tom was doing uh, vanished when he died violently in, in January of 77. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, there's no file. I mean, that's just one more, one more of the little puzzles in this case. What, what happened to the stuff that Tom was working on that was of such concern to him that it might have gotten the whole family killed? Uh, what did he learn from Neil Roberts? I mean, we'll never know because that file is also missing. So either Tom, for some reason or other, when he killed himself, decided to burn the file, which strikes me as not likely, uh, or that file got taken by the people that, that killed Tom. When, when uh, Tom was still alive after he had lunch with Bill Meek, he came back to his house. Uh, his son Kyle came home briefly on an errand and came in the house. Dad? Dad, are you home? I'm in here. I'm in the bathroom. Say anything, I kill you and you kid. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tom kept his mouth shut and Kyle left. At that point, I suspect the killer took the shotgun and the file and Tom into Tom's car. There would have been a second guy involved because this guy, has, you know, they left Tom's car out in the desert. They would not have walked back to town. So an accomplice would have followed the killer in Tom's car out to the desert and then driven the killer back to Phoenix when they were done. I suspect at that point that Tom was probably already unconscious. From the way his head was damaged in the shotgun blast, the whole top of the head was gone. Uh, he could have been hit over the head and knocked unconscious and put in the trunk of the car. Uh, I can't think of anything else that makes much sense. How in the world did we not notice Bull's editor had died violently while we were all in town, while the Arizona Project was here, and it hadn't even raised any concern whatsoever? a great gaping hole in our work at that time. But according to Devereaux, there was an even bigger player in the assassination of Don Bowles. In uh, the 1970s, the Arizona Republic was a very conservative Republican and very much wrapped up in the sort of Chamber of Commerce business community, which was slightly mobbed up at that time. Paper was not inclined to rock many boats involving prominent people. It was, Don was not a popular reporter. He was out there muckraking at people that were close friends of the publisher, which they didn't appreciate to begin with. Uh, but because of his involvement with his suspicion of the mob and the dog tracks, uh, Don had become a target of funk family counterintelligence, if you will, uh, beginning uh, about 1970. And uh, he was wiretapped. Uh, among other things at that time, along with Sam Steiger, who was a U.S. congressman, but also a friend of Don's, who was uh, on a House subcommittee that was investigating M-Price at that time for mob involvement. So wiretapping began, 
and a fellow named George Johnson was uh, retained by Brad Funk as a private investigator, unlicensed, to conduct this sort of counter-surveillance, if you will, on Bulls and Steiger. It, it involved penetrating banking records, long-distance phone records, and also putting a wiretap on Don's residential telephone. And a fellow named Carl Morton in town was the guy that ran the wiretapping crew. Someplace along the way in the summer of 1970, it appears that George Johnson and Carl Morton, uh, in the process of wiretapping a congressman and a reporter, began to feel they weren't being paid enough money to take those kinds of legal risks. This was uh, too big a deal for whatever kind of fee they were getting for doing it. And it looks like they tried to shake more money down out of the Funk family uh, to compensate for what they were doing. And maybe even with some threats of uh, going public if they didn't get paid. Uh, a couple things happened very quickly thereafter. Carl Morton and his wife and another couple were killed in a very peculiar plane crash on the Sonoran side of the U.S.-Mexican border uh, that might not have been an accident. Uh, he certainly would have been looking at a grand jury subpoena at some point had he not been killed. Uh, but he and all three other people on the plane were killed instantly and uh, suspicions of water, gas, and all kinds of stuff came up. Whatever happened, for better or worse, uh, George Johnson, the guy who had been the intermediary between Funk and Martin, uh, was afraid that they had been killed deliberately and took that as a threat aimed at him as well. These guys are playing rough, he said to some people. And he went running to Sam Steiger for protection. Went to the congressman and said, look what I've been doing for these guys. Now I think they were the bad guys and you were the good guys. And so I'm running to you and telling you what we were doing. Uh, because of his involvement with Steiger and his cooperation, he was never charged. And he became in effect a cooperative federal witness in the wiretap investigation, among other things, and the bank stuff and everything else. It ultimately was proven that uh, they had acquired Bull's banking records and they had acquired his long-distance phone records. That was ascertained with both the phone company and, and uh, the bank. People got caught doing that. The wiretap stuff they couldn't ultimately prove because the wiretapping tapes and equipment all disappeared. Does this all sound pretty wild? Remember, this was 1976. At that time, it was a lot easier to sweep things under the rug. When, when Morton was killed, uh, his attorney and some friends ransacked his house and removed a lot of stuff. No one is exactly sure how much stuff got taken or what, but if he had any wiretap tapes or equipment, it went away. At the same time, George Johnson's apartment was vandalized and whatever kinds of tapes he had from the wiretapping disappeared. And all that remained to be prosecuted, if anybody had wanted to, was the banking stuff and, and uh, the long-distance phone records. Bowles sued Emprise and the Funks in 70 for violation of his privacy, and articles were written about it. And Bowles and the paper were countersued by Emprise and the Funk for libel. And so this big collection of lawsuits was consolidated into one big lawsuit. It floated around the court system until 73 without ever going to trial, just lots of depositions and other kinds of activity. And suddenly in 1973, Don was called in one morning and told that even though he should have won the lawsuit, it was being settled out of court, not in his favor. And he was paid some money under the table by the Republic and set on vacation. 
And when he came back, uh, he had been told this was the way it had to be. He came back and he was transferred from an investigative reporter to the state capitol and told not to work on the function emprise the mob anymore, do something else. And uh, went ahead and continued to work on Emprise and the Funks with Tom Sanford without anybody else at the paper knowing about it. They kept that a secret from the paper at that time forward. So why did the Arizona Republic suddenly settle this libel case when they appeared to have a strong case against the Funk family? About two weeks before the lawsuit was settled out of court, a very good source of mine, uh, who was involved in black bag electronics at that time, was paid $10,000 to set up a camera blind in one of the downtown Phoenix hotels. And the people that did this, purchased the stuff, were people involved with the Greyhound racing industry here. People involved with the people that Bowles was in lawsuit with at that time. And this is about two weeks before the lawsuit was settled out of court. It had all the appearances to me of somebody fairly high up at that paper having been caught in a hotel room uh, with a child. Not with a, not with a hooker, wouldn't have been important enough. You know, prostitution was too widespread in Phoenix at that time to be a blackmailable offense normally. It'd be embarrassing, but it wouldn't be the end of anything. It had to be somebody underage or something like that in a hotel room to create leverage. Uh, my hunch is that somebody at the Arizona Republic got caught uh, doing something he shouldn't have been doing uh, by Emprise and the mob at that time. And that's the lawsuit that was settled out of court's reason for having been settled. That same leverage would have existed in 1976 when the Bowles case happened. Uh, and the paper acquired all of the stuff that Don had been doing secretly on the dog tracks and the funks from Don's residence. Uh, somebody from the paper with security guards went out to the Bowles residence intimidated Don's widow, actually before she was a widow, Don was still alive in the hospital, into telling them where Don kept the stuff he was working on that they didn't know about but had learned that he was doing. And Don kept a box of stuff in the roof of his carport of the stuff he didn't want the paper to know about that he was doing on the funks and the bomb. And that was the last stuff he was doing for the last three years of his life before he was killed. All of that stuff was acquired by the paper uh, from Rosalie Bowles reluctantly in 1973 and never has been seen again. It's all gone. That stuff never made it to the police department, never made it anywhere. It just vanished. So somebody at the paper destroyed whatever Don was doing the last three years of his life. And one of the reasons the cops later claimed that they didn't pay more attention to his dying words was because they couldn't find anything in the records that indicated he was still working on that topic. And that's, you know, the fundamental reason for that. But uh, it all disappeared. It all disappeared. I think the paper took a dive. According to Don Devereaux, when Bowles pursued his secret investigation of the Funks and the Emprise Corporation, he shared his work under the table with his editor, Tom Sanford, who amassed a secret file of Bowles' findings and kept it hidden in the rafters of his home. But in the days following his death, Sanford's widow would discover that the files were gone. Could it have been the same men who abducted Sanford and took him out to the desert? Today, Arizona Republic editor Tom Sanford was found dead off Highway 210 in a remote portion of the desert outside Phoenix. Sanford was found lying next to his vehicle, cradling a shotgun. The death is being investigated as an apparent suicide. 
Tom Sanford's death was not just a mystery, but a public secret that Max Dunlap's family didn't even know about. Max had been arrested just two weeks prior. After my dad was arrested, our world was turned upside down. We had never even heard of Tom Sanford, let alone that his files would have proven my dad's innocence. We had no idea. Sanford's death the day before he was going to blow the case wide open would be tantamount to the Nixon administration during the Watergate scandal, killing investigative reporter Bob Woodward six months after assassinating his journalistic partner, Carl Bernstein. All the while, neither the Dunlap defense team nor the family knew that Tom Sanford's investigation would probably have derailed the prosecution against Max Dunlap nor did they know when the investigation abruptly came to an end with Sanford's supposed suicide. The cavalry was not coming. Nine months later, Max Dunlap would go to trial for first-degree murder. If found guilty, he'd be put on death row, facing the gas chamber that would be just steps away from his cell. At this point in Max Dunlap's ordeal, it seemed that no help was coming. The Patsy is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced, reported, and written by Chris Leach and Adam Prince, and directed by Chris Leach. Executive produced by Nat Mundell, Karen Graham, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins, with additional editing by Nick Masidi and Andres Coca. Narrated by Joshua Molina. Cast credits available in the show notes. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes. When 27-year-old Gretchen Fleming leaves a West Virginia bar with a former police officer on a winter night in 2022, she's never seen again. Diligent investigators close in on an ex-cop with an unlikely story and an unsettling reputation in a recent episode of the Unsolved True Crime podcast, Last Seen Alive. Last Seen Alive is a true crime podcast researched, written, and hosted by crime analyst Leah Owens. Cases covered include disappearances, homicides, and suspicious deaths, all of them unsolved and all of them in need of tips from the public. Recognizing that the right piece of information can sometimes be the difference between a cold case and resolution, Last Seen Alive exists to bring public awareness to cases that need it. Listen to Gretchen's story and more than 100 other gripping mysteries as told by a working crime analysis professional. Find Last Seen Alive wherever you listen to podcasts.